Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Let's talk about today's show. This is a topic... I've been interested in in bringing on this guest for for months, um, but it's based on an article that she's writing. Our, our guest is Deborah Sloan, who's written for CIP in the past. She's a researcher at CIP, and her last article was uh, for Master Resource, the blog that we often uh, affiliate with and that I'm I'm a principal at, uh, the f- leading free market energy blog um, in many people's opinion. Anyway, she wrote a great article on nuclear propulsion how space propulsion has been held back by anti-technology sentiment, uh, particularly directed at nuclear. Um, and I thought that was a fantastic article. Um, but as we've been working together, she's been telling me about her experiences in, of all industries, the solar industry. And you might not expect that someone who works with CIP would have extensive industry in the solar industry. And we'll, we'll talk about how that came to be. Um, but I really wanted to have her write an article about it, which she did, and it's coming out soon. It's called I Had a Green Job. But I also wanted to bring her on the program because this is the deal with green jobs. We hear all about green jobs from both sides of, you know, from both sides ideologically. Um, you'll hear about, you know, from people who don't believe in subsidies, who think that green energy has a lot of corruption. You'll hear that it's that they're bad, and I certainly am Part of that viewpoint. And then you'll hear from the other side many idyllic portrayals of how the whole future of the American economy depends on creating these amazing uh, green jobs. But what I've never heard and what I've never really read until this article uh, by Deborah Sloan is what a green job is actually like in practice. For those of us who believe that these subsidized jobs aren't really productive, that they're taking away people's money that they could be spending on things that would benefit them or they're taking away money from firms that could spend them on productive jobs. What does it mean to actually work in one of these industries? What does it do to a person? How does how does a better kind of engineer, someone who really wants to create things, what does it feel like to work in an industry that's really supported by the government and that doesn't seem to have any future? And uh, the reason I invited Debbie on today is because I think when you hear her story, it'll give you a really strong image and a really concrete understanding of what it means for the government to create a job. We hear all the time about the government creating jobs in energy and other places. Well, this is going to be what a government-created job looks like. And I'm going to tell you in advance, some parts of it are going to be really painful to listen to. And the thing I want to stress throughout is, and th- is that when you listen to this do not just assume that this is some wacky solar company and we've been scouring the earth for some you know, incredible series of horrors. This is actually probably a better than average solar company. We'll ask her about that. Um, but we'll see that it's not the particular company or the particular people, but it's the nature of what a green job is, what government-supported energy amounts to that incentivizes and leads to the often horrific 
uh, things we're going to talk about. So I want I want to on the one hand I want to steal you against some of the stuff you're going to hear because when I heard it it was it was hard to take, uh, and then on the other hand I want to encourage you to think about what are the institutional incentives that make something like this possible instead of just dismissing it as oh this is just you know this is just one random person's uh, story. So with that uh, we've got. Deborah on the line. Uh, Deborah, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. So in the name of, of showing what a green job is really like, uh, I think it's good to start out with the person who has the green job, because often you'll get a lot of talent in these industries. You'll get a lot of, you know, a lot of really bright people who are attracted to them. And, um, it's, you know, I, I know your story fairly well, but I think it's helpful for the audience. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background in engineering, including how you got interested in engineering and what you expected, what you wanted out of a job in engineering? Sure. Um, well, I, in terms of my background, education-wise, I got a bachelor's in aerospace engineering, and then I went on to Stanford and got a master's in mechanical engineering. Um, and when I was in, in aerospace engineering, I had kind of focused on propulsion and as is probably evident by my article about nuclear propulsion. And, um, and I just really got interested in energy production and just how crucial it is. Right. Because I mean, for, uh, like for, as an aerospace engineer, for instance, I mean, an airplane or a rocket or any kind of vehicle like that is just completely useless without that energy propelling it and it can do cooler and more exciting things the more uh power that it has so so i got really interested in energy and and i um and i'd started uh kind of getting shifting my interest a little bit towards that although i had had an internship in the defense industry with uh working on in the rocket propulsion uh field when i was an undergrad but and i went on to do to stanford and and um entered the mechanical engineering program and did a lot of really awesome stuff with spectroscopy and combustion and, and um, decided that I wanted to go into industry. I had been a poor student for six years and had been working, poor, you know, poor as, poor as in financially poor, right? Not, <laughs> not, not poor performing, hopefully. Right. I was financially poor, but I like to think that I was a good student. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so I was kind of ready to get out and start making money and just like just the the whole um, process of creating something is so amazing. Like you have this idea and then you get something made and there's actually a tangible thing in front of you that does something um, and something that's that's valuable and interesting. And uh, I just was really excited about moving on to that. So that's how I came to uh, to go out of academia and into industry. When I graduated, so so with this idea of of, and I've done a bit of engineering in my life, though nowhere near as much as you. With this idea of, but we, I think we've all had this experience, like, wow, I created this. Even if you you build, you know, you assemble an IKEA desk, if that's the most you've ever done, it's pretty cool. You know, I turn. But did you have any sense in your education or in your study outside that there was just this phenomenon of? You're, you're putting things together physically, you're creating in a certain sense, but it's not economic, it's not valuable because it's, you know, it, the inputs are worth more than the outputs. Uh, were you just, were you familiar with like this? Because I know a lot of engineers, 
I, I don't think are taught to think in those terms. They're more taught to think, or some aren't. You know, they're taught to think in terms of, especially if they're in more subsidized fields, they're more academic fields that don't have a profit uh, motive attached to it. It's There's a kind of, oh, it's cool to build things and all, who could argue with building things? But of course, the inputs of building things can be very valuable and to use them, and those took work for someone to create. So you're basically taking their work hours and their value and if you make, if you try to, you know, if you make like a, an experimental perpetual motion machine, that's no good. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. You know, my, one of my first days at my internship, uh, I had an engineer who was sort of like a, a mentor for me, um, at me being the, the intern. Uh, and one of the first things she told me was that it's not your job to think about cost. It's just your job to think about how to make things work. And so I would say that, yes, that mentality exists. You're not like the, the basic idea. I mean, the idea is that, yes, we're going to ultimately contribute to someone making money somehow, but there's other people who are responsible for figuring out how to make that happen. And as engineers, it's just our job to make it work. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I would think about it sometimes, though, because it seemed so expensive, especially in the defense industry. I mean, we were making these multi-million dollar rockets. Um, so, some of them were for private applications too, like satellite orbital insertion and, and that sort of thing. But I, I just remember being amazed sometimes by the fact that we were able to make money after spending all this on like salaries for engineers and just um, so many expensive pieces of equipment. And it just, that kind of was something that I was in awe of. And I would think, are we sure we can afford this? I mean, are we still going to really be able to make money? (laughs) And uh, so it was something that I was kind of aware of, but, but as, you know, as an engineer, it's true that you don't, you don't think about that. You're not trained to think about that. And you don't really ever talk about it in certainly in your classes or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I would say that it wasn't something that I was, it was not on, um, something that I was primarily conscious of. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting how different fields are taught different perspectives on things because just having studied a lot of of economics in my life, I, I I've talked to different people in Silicon Valley about some of these green ventures, and they'll look at someone and they'll say, like, "Wow, this person has created such a piece of technology." Someone like Elon Musk at Tesla. I've had this argument with several people, and it, it, there's a sense in which they can do some really elegant things and some beautiful things with electric motors, and at, and at some point, this might be a really productive enterprise. But at the moment. They've got a four hundred million dollar plus loan guarantee of my money, uh, and that's that does not make me happy. And and there's this element that's hard for some people to understand, where you can be doing lot, you can be solving lots of scientific and technological problems, and in that sense, be doing something good, and yet the outlet of what you're doing can be bad because again, you're taking all of these resources that you're using have a value to them and they're ultimately created by human beings. So you're taking their work and their value and you're making something less valuable. So even if it involves some sort of cool, you know, gee whiz combination of things, it, it isn't. And that that then gets us into um, the solar industry. So when did you when did you get into the solar industry and then what what brought you into a solar company as against any other kind of company? 
Okay, well, um, when it was 2008, I graduated with my master's in June of 2008, and um, what motivated it? Well, it was kind of a number of things. I was, um, I was, uh, the 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 idea of working at a startup appealed to me. I mean, because I'm in Silicon Valley, and and there uh, there are a lot of really the the prospect of getting a job at a startup on its way up is really exciting because for one thing, you get to build a new company that that perhaps does something fundamentally new. Um, and then at the same time, you part of the compensation package of a startup is stock options. So if you build a company that has becomes tremendously valuable, uh, you can make just incredible amounts of money. Like I think I remember hearing that the uh, Microsoft, for instance, um, and, and Google, there were like secretaries who were made into millionaires because they had stock options and the, and the return was a factor of like a thousand or something like that. Now, of course, that's not the typical result, um, but, but that sort of thing is possible if you work at a startup. So that was something that really appealed to me. And I was just kind of seeing what was out there and going to job fairs and that kind of thing. And I met someone from this company where I ended up going to work. And, um, it, uh, my husband had, he emailed someone, he knows some, some of the, the venture capitalists around here. He emailed someone who's on the board, one of the VCs and said, what do you think about this company? My wife's thinking about looking, you know, about going to work there. And, and this VC who I, I don't want to name him, uh, because I'm not sure I'm allowed to, <laughs> um, but he, uh, he's a very, very prestigious uh, BC. This wasn't some kind of hack firm. This is someone whose name you would recognize. And he said, oh, I'm very excited about this company. Um, so with his blessing, too, uh, it was it just looked really compelling. And so that and in 2008, as I'm sure everyone recalls, gas prices had shot up and they were getting close to five dollars a gallon, at least in California. And in, it was just there was no indication that it was even going to stop there. And so what I thought at the time was that energy would be a really exciting field to get into, uh, in addition to just from the engineering perspective that I liked the idea of making energy, but also because I thought there was sort of maybe the potential for kind of like an energy boom with some new company coming along. And because of the fact that gas, I thought we were just running out or something. I didn't realize that the prices were going up because of, um, well, I, I didn't really understand all the mechanisms behind what was driving the prices. And so I thought that there was a lot of potential. And I had made a calculated decision that this is, this is where the next big thing is going to be. There was the Internet, and now there's going to be some kind of new energy technology, and I want to get in on it. I just want to jump in uh, for just to, to plug, I think, the importance of, and this is a good example of why it's important to be educated about energy and why why it's always heartening to me when I hear people who have nothing to do with energy listen to Power Hour and they say that they learn a lot because there's a division of labor in our society where intellectuals in the energy field are responsible for telling the public the truth about energy, and that includes both the present state of affairs, so things like what are you know, what's the state of different oil reserves or other metrics of measuring oil? Uh, but also, you know, what are the different mechanisms of how these technologies work, how promising they actually are, et cetera? And to the extent that they distort those or to the extent that they give false negative moral evaluations to productive energies or, or um, 
overly positive moral evaluations to inferior energies, um, it, what it does is it takes very, very bright people and it, it skews their whole decision-making uh, process. And, you know, I would submit that's, that's what happened here. So I'm curious, what did the, I mean, I know, you know, in the, I certainly remember 2008 uh, as far as oil prices go, but what did, and I, you know, of course there's all of this rhetoric about green jobs and there wasn't even these public debacles like Solyndra. So it was, it was a pretty popular idea back then. Al Gore, I forget it was, if it was in 08 or 09, but he gave a big speech. They you know started repeating this line that I've attacked a lot of times on this show, I think about, you know, the sun gives off hundreds of times more energy than we could ever need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not ignoring the fact that that's not usable economic energy. Anyway, I'm curious what the company told you about their prospects, like what, what they said, what they aspired to do in the future that you would then be a part of. Well, just that they had the prospect for a fantastic amount of growth and, um, you know, they they all had a very optimistic uh, attitude or, or so at least that was the impression that I got and they expected it to grow into a really huge company and we're going to make lots of money. And, and I remember like the first all hands meeting that I went to, the CEO saying things about how, um, you know, no, I'm not interested in competing with First Solar. First Solar, to anyone who doesn't know, was sort of like the biggest solar company in the United States at the time and probably still is. But um, anyway, he's, he'd say, no, no, we're not interested in just competing with First Solar. We're going to take off, you know, we're going to take out First Solar, but we're going to compete with coal and oil. The energy market is huge and we're going to be competitive in it. And, you know, just he, he, he was very compelling. Uh, I remember getting really excited after hearing him speak like that, like that, because he didn't say anything, you know, about government helping us or anything like that. He just kind of talked about how great we were, how great we were going to be and how like sort of the sky's the limit. Yeah. And I can imagine, you know, especially in the absence of, of any proper energy education or economic education in the culture. I mean, that would be great. I, I once went to a a green energy conference where various people were speaking. And I remember a guy from eSolar, I have no idea what happened to that company or him since, but he, you know, he was very adamant about, look, we're going to be competitive with, you know, these other mainstream technologies without subsidies. The future is not subsidies. We're going to outproduce them. And that's fantastic. That's exactly why uh, the proper view is not to be anti-solar or anti any energy technology. It's simply to want a free market and then let, people with these ideas uh, try them out. So that that sounds so far so good. Now I happen to know the rest of the story. So let's let's move on to that. Is and as I remember that this you heard this at the beginning was very, very exciting. And at some point you started to have doubts about whether this was the company was actually headed in the direction of outproducing uh the most successful, effective forms of energy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it just, uh, progress wasn't really happening and, and, and a lot of the stuff that they had talked about, like I just kind of started to, to, to wonder about it. I mean, and also after the sort of initial phase of like just being blown away by, wow, I'm a professional engineer and, and, and just sort of the, uh, I don't know, being in awe of that. Uh, after a while, I started just 
starting to think about what kind of, um, you know, planning for the future, what kind of future does this industry have? How exactly do we make money? I mean, one thing that I noticed and, and I never really got a satisfactory answer to it was, um, so why is it that, that like people who extract coal or oil, they use coal or oil based energy to get it. But, but why don't we ever want to put solar panels on our factory? Why don't we use that? I mean, if, if, if it's especially since we're making the panels, so we don't even have to pay any kind of shipping or, or anything, we can just get them at cost. Well, why don't we ever want to? Uh, why don't we have solar panels on our roof and and things like that? Just kind of started making me wonder. And then I also uh, our our first customers were all in Europe, and in I know I think our first shipment was however, to, uh, to Chevron, which was really strange, but, but most of the customers were in Europe and, and not really a lot of U.S. companies. And um, it just made me wonder, you know, you, these were socialized and, and, and welfare subsidized type of, of uh, utilities in Europe. So why aren't people in the United States buying it, I wondered, for the most part. And, and, and if something has to be subsidized or, or if it's something um, subsidized or socialized, then that means people are being forced to pay for it. And it just didn't reconcile with this exciting picture that the CEO had given me on uh, how well we were going to do and how much money we were going to make. And it sounded like we were just getting ready to take on the world. But then it's just these subsidized European utilities who are um, buying our, our panels. And, and uh, so that just seemed, I don't know, it, it kind of got me thinking. And it made me want to look into it further. So when you, well, let's just take the beginning of the company then. I mean, what, what sense did you have at all that solar is subsidized? Because it seems like, uh, it's hard for me to know, but it seems like it's fairly common knowledge that to some extent the government promotes solar energy or wind energy over other kinds. Or, but maybe not. Maybe I don't, I'm curious to what extent you had that sense going in and was it just a matter of, well, we're going to get off these subsidies post haste. No, because I didn't realize that because my company was backed by a venture capital firm. Mm. And so it wasn't, and nor did they say anything about any kind of subsidies. And the way that the subsidies did come was indirect. So like, for instance, our customers being subsidized. But then I found out that there are a lot of things in the tax code where the company gets reimbursed for, I think, 30% of the development costs for any kind of solar energy or any attempt to produce solar energy, even if you don't ever actually succeed in producing any energy. If you just try and say that you're going to try, uh, then you can get reimbursed for about 30% of your cost. And it doesn't really matter if you actually make anything at all. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing. It was, it was not visible to me at all. Um, and I thought that I, there was just this sort of political environment. It was actually a little bit annoying to me because when I mentioned to people when I was getting ready to graduate and go there that I had taken a job at a solar company, that a lot of them would say, oh, you're doing something good for the environment. And that, that almost bothered me because I was thinking like, no, I just want to make energy and make money. <laughs> but uh, uh, Well, of course, I mean, it, 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 now... I hate, as I say a lot, I hate the terminology the environment because it's it acts like environment is something like separate from man. But if we talk about our environment or the human environment, of course, 
part of the appeal of solar would be, at least if you take like from an emissions perspective, this is leaving aside all the toxicity of the materials and what and the mining process and stuff, which people don't pay attention to. But if you just take the running of it, yeah, all other things being equal, you would like something that generates no you know, immediate emissions waste. Mm -hmm. That's, that's good. And, and, you know, in the same way that one, one reason to be excited about the potential of nuclear power is that it emits no waste, you know, and that's, that's great. I mean, you want to minimize waste and just like we're, we should be excited that a modern coal plant, you know, by historical standards is one of the most clean ways of generating energy because of modern, you know, various modern emissions reductions. Uh, technology. So that's certainly a, a legitimate concern. But when it's when it's the only concern or when that's the primary and your whole goal is just to produce something that doesn't emit things, well, nothing doesn't emit things. And that, you know, producing nothing is not very good if you want uh, if you want energy. So that that makes sense about the venture capital. So. All right. So we got the stage of you. you realize that you're producing for these socialized utilities that they're paying above market rates that you're exploiting their taxpayers. How did that make you feel about the technical aspects of the work? Because all along, it's not as if you're just researching the economics of this, you're going day in and day out and doing a a technical job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just, um, it kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. It, It was, it's, it was a really strange kind of thing because I still really loved the the actual process of figuring out how to solve a problem and and creating something. But then when I did, I would think, but what's it for? I mean, I may as well just be doing something else to amuse myself and getting paid for it. Like, am I actually doing something worthwhile? Or is this just me getting a paycheck to do something fun and interesting and with no result at all? And it, and it kind of, it was just a really deflating kind of experience. It's, um... It's really easy to to go to work um, the, the way that that it is at a startup. You work 12 hours or more per day and, and a lot of times work weekends and, and people are excited to do so because you're doing you're creating something and you're building a company and it's and it's wonderful. Like sometimes you have to just make yourself go home at the end of the day. But but then it's hard to have that kind of attitude and that kind of motivation if all you're doing is something that's interesting at the moment that you're doing it but that once you've succeeded was pointless um and i wanted to to research it more at that point to find out for sure whether what i was creating would ultimately make money would it was it viable at all um did it were we able to ever make solar panels for less then, um, you know, could, could we ever make it cost efficient so that we were actually making a money and producing a net value? Um, and I still hoped at that point that I would find if I looked into it more that we did have a, a way to actually be legitimately competitive with coal and oil, but that was not what I found. All right. Well, that raises the question, uh, what, what did you find? Yeah, well, I uh, I just researched the economics of it, and the CEO would often talk about how we could produce panels for a cost of under a dollar per watt or around a dollar per watt, which is considered, uh, and I've heard this in other places as well, it's considered the magic number for achieving quote-unquote grid parity, uh, which essentially means, I think that 
that that means people are claiming that if you can produce solar panels for one dollar a watt or less, then you're economically on a par with coal or oil or natural gas or something like that. But that's just not the case because, yeah, that sounds great. I can make a solar panel for under a dollar a watt. And the company did have a viable roadmap to getting that. But they don't mention that the panels are not the most expensive part of the system. If you can sell them for $1 a watt, there's uh, a whole balance of system. There's, you know, DC to AC converters, which is... Wait, so hold on just for one second, just so... Because I don't think most people have heard that term. So can you just elaborate what is what is the concept balance of system? And just elaborate a little bit on what what kind of a system is a solar panel part of? Because often it's just viewed as... The sol- you know, there's a solar panel and you somehow magically get electricity out of it. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it's uh, I guess the, the balance of system is the part that does that that magic. It um, you, you have to mount the panel somewhere. So there's just the simple acquisition of land in, in most cases. But even if not, even if you're just putting the panel on your roof, you've got to have structural mounting. There's what the way that the energy from the photons, it, it comes in the form of a direct current if you will the sun doesn't put out an ac uh <laughs> power so you got to do a, you got to have dc to ac converters and all kinds of switches and wiring and um th- there's just a lot to it you've got to tra- if we're talking about some kind of an uh like a pg&e uh, energy company type of uh energy utility then the energy's got to be transported it can't be stored that's another thing that i hadn't realized is that we don't really have a way to just store energy that's collected by uh, the solar panels. And so it can't just be stored and then used later when people need it. There's the whole intermittency issue in addition to the balance of system. And so then you have the problem, the fact that people's peak demand doesn't coincide with the peak energy output of the sun and that the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. And, and then when you think, when do we need the energy the most? Well, Often when the sun is not shining, you, you need to lights if it's dark out or in the winter when the, there's a lot less solar <laughs> natural energy from the sun, then it gets cold and you need to heat your home. And there are just a lot of considerations like that that also drive the cost up in terms of it just not being practical and needing to be supplemented with some other kind of energy. Yeah, I find the the whole idea of grid parity to be completely objectionable given the intermittency issue because it's it's just an enormous accomplishment to have a steady a, a controllable source of power that you can turn on and off at will and that you can you can adjust up and down at will and to compare that with something that's dependent on something that's basically turned off you know 12 hours a day and that and that you know even intermittent within that space that it's you know the sun is shining is just such a it's such a ridiculous thing to come. It's not apples to apples. I, mean, I like to say it's like comparing apples to rotten oranges. And the only thing that makes <laughs> it plausible, as one of our guests said, is it's kind of like chocolate. The grid can handle a little bit of intermittency, although there's no reason for it to. But the whole premise of all this solar stuff, unless you really think it's going to be cheaper and you can somehow then compensate for the intermittency, develop a storage system and still be on top, the real pretext for it is, well, we're going to wholesale replace, uh, you know, hydrocarbons and we're going to create a whole network of this stuff. And it's exactly the opposite. It does, the, it, they act like, well, the more of it we have, the better it'll scale. And it's exact opposite is true. 
the more of it you have, the worse an intermittent source of energy scales and the more the more cost. So I, yeah, I think it's a good the balance of the intermittency is a good concept, which we've discussed before. But the balance of systems is, is helpful and it's helpful in just thinking concretely, just not not accepting if someone just says, let's I guess there's a general tendency that I, I've noticed of talking about energy sources just in terms of the fuel or the raw material. So it's solar energy or it's wind energy. And it's this almost mystical idea that we're just automatically getting the energy from these sources. And then we look at them and we say, oh, well, solar, there's a ton of that and it's free, right? It's come straight and wind. Well, why not do that? But the whole, we've always had a ton of solar and a ton of wind and a ton of oil for that matter. The whole issue is conversion. How do you actually transform this unusable form of energy into usable? Because it all, it all starts as unusable. And this balance of systems makes concrete that with solar, there's this you have to have all this infrastructure for orienting orienting it at the exact right angle. If you're talking about an mm-hmm. industrial scale thing, it needs to move. Uh, it needs to you need to put it in the right places, which are usually far away from the places you need it. It's just this whole complex, enormous manufacturing, construction, land use project that the way to decide whether it's a good idea is is economic. And I guess what you were figuring out is is it wasn't economic now what did what did people say when you brought these things up did they have oh we're gonna we're gonna solve this problem in you know two years we have we have a magic storage system you just haven't seen it yet what no was the response um you know it's kind of evasive for instance i asked my boss one time about just the it, it's not exactly the same uh, the balance of system issue but i i asked him about can we ultimately get more energy out than we put in in order to, to produce, you know, are we producing energy on a net balance or, or not? And he's just complained that that wasn't a fair question. Uh, and I can't really remember the convoluted explanation I got for why it wasn't fair, because somehow I wasn't um, looking at coal and oil. I was not making an equivalent comparison or I, I don't even know. I mean, it, it just it was it was a bizarre answer. And, and I just remember him saying that's not a fair question. Um, and so <laughs> that's the quality that sort of indicates the quality of answers I got if uh, when and if I asked people about these types of issues. Um, nothing that reassured me at all. Well, so they they had to know. I mean, people have to know at some point that they are n- that they're not really going to make money by outproducing the competition. They're going to make money by outmanipulating the competition and, in fact, handicapping or destroying the competition through some combination of government favors. I mean, to what extent did people realize that? Because it seems like they had to, right? There, I mean, they're you know, if you're if you're selling popsicles or something like that. And your popsicles cost three times as much as everyone else's. Mm-hmm. And you have to get the government to give you like, you know, it has to make up that two thirds of the cost. At some point, you have to realize I'm a fraudulent popsicle seller. So to what extent did they how did they hold that in their minds? I think they tried not to. I know that they never talked about that kind of thing with us. I mean, you, I never heard until the very end, right? uh, You know, this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but we ended up getting a new CEO and he was very brazen about 
you know, just unapologetically said we were going to seek legislative solutions to limit the competition and things like that. And he just it didn't seem to occur to him that he was saying anything shocking or upsetting or controversial. It just didn't seem to register for him at all. But that was that was the new kind of the new school. The uh, people who were there for most of the time that I was there, the CEO who had initially given me this inspirational speech at the all hands meeting about how we were just going to beat them by being good and that we were doing something exciting. I never heard him say anything. Um, He did mention that we were going to apply for a DOE loan guarantee. And I don't know whatever came of that. He he didn't seem like he was too hot on the idea. I remember him saying, we don't know if we're going to want to use it, but it might be good to just know that it's there in case we do decide that we're going to use it. So he seemed a little squeamish about it, actually, now that I think about that. And that's the only mention I really heard about explicit discussion of government support for our industry at all. Um, until the, until much later when that CEO was replaced. Why why was he replaced? I don't know and they don't it, you know I don't know if it's just this company or in general but but it nobody even said he was gone. He they, they said he was on leave. <laughs> they said he was just going to he had to take some time off and for a couple months and, and and every once in a while we would ask at the staff meetings like hey uh so uh is, is the ceo going to be back anytime soon what's going on with that and they'd say oh he's just on leave and then all of a sudden we had a new ceo and and the first thing that that's the only way that i ever found out that the old one was gone is we got an email from the new one saying hi i'm your new ceo <laughs> so i i don't know what happened the, the best kind of intel that i could get from just the rumor mill, I guess, is that there was some kind of falling out between him and the board and that he quit. Uh, but I can't really tell you more than that because that's all I know. So just to step back for a second at this point, I just want to highlight that we're talking about, uh, I mean, you can tell here, I'm sure you guys can tell listening, our guest here is very bright. We're dealing with many bright, I mean, there's many bright people in this company, right? It's not a bunch of dunces. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there were PhDs there. And of course, a degree per se doesn't doesn't mean anything mean that someone's intelligent, but they were. I mean, there were a lot of talented and dedicated engineers and scientists, and some of whom are most likely still there. So you've just got you've got all of this talent. And because because of this uh, cultural, but ultimately political phenomenon of of ideologically favoring certain sorts of energies that are not that are not nearly as good uh, over others. What you have is very very smart people solving what one of, one fan of the show likes to call worthless problems. Ultimately, as in they're not economically valuable problems. And not only that, so it's a waste. But then they also become parasites. I mean, it, whether deliberately or not. Uh, and because they're you know they're using the rest of our money and their livelihood ultimately depends on literally destroying the competition i mean if we hear things like we want to eliminate 80% of co2 emissions by government you know by government policies that means you're shutting down people's coal mines you're shutting down factories you're shutting down oil rigs and it's one thing if those get shut down because you found out a better way to produce it but if you know you can't and you're still shutting them down, that's, that's destruction. The thing I want to get to next is some of the examples you saw of what having an essentially destructive job 
uh, did to people. So let, let's let's start out with cap and trade. How did sort of how did the company take cap and trade, and how did you take cap and trade? Well, I'm sure there are people there who were really happy with the outcome there. I was not. I mean, that you mean was, when it when it was initially. I mean, because of course it was not. You know, it didn't go through eventually, but you mean when it was initially passed by the House? Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, I'm, I kind of immediately went back in my mind to 2009. Um, yeah, I had been just desperately hoping that it would be stopped. And I, there was, again, not a lot of discussion. It's, it's almost like they understood that if they talked about a lot of stuff like that explicitly, they would horrify some of us. Uh, so they didn't really talk about it a lot, like, oh, we, we want to pull for cap and trade or... or you know, I just I didn't really hear much from them one way or the other about it. I had mentioned to one of my colleagues that I was just desperately hoping they would not pass it, that that that's not the way innovation happens by smashing other people who have achieved something. Um, and the colleague who I was speaking with about it agreed with me. And so that's just to show, again, like you already mentioned, that there were a lot of decent and talented and smart people that I was not the only one who had this feeling about cap and trade, but I remember just, I'll never forget how horrified I was when I found out that it passed. And I almost felt like it, I was, I, I hated that, that it was somehow beneficial to my industry. And, um, it was just, it, it was just devastating because I, I knew enough about how just draconian it would be. And, um, and I just thought, like, wow, I don't live in a free country anymore, and I'm going to benefit somehow from this, presumably, but I don't want to. Well, I think that's an admirable feeling. Um, having read the article, I, I know that that's not the feeling of a lot of people, and, that's, and you're not incent. I think it's important to highlight, you're not incentivized to have that feeling. So it might be that you, that because you're particularly thoughtful about it or you know, so you've had certain intellectual influences or whatever, that, that your reaction is this. But but for most people, and overwhelmingly, people who are in a parasitical industry, they can't, that can only be sustained so long, right? Because at some point, you're going to, you can't accept it. You're going to leave and you have to recognize that your interests are aligned with uh, destruction. And that, that brings me to, I think, one of the more disturbing things that I learned from you about this, which is that when you brought what happened when you brought up the whole pretext for cap and trade and a lot of solar, which is the catastrophic global warming issue? You know, a lot of some people you might think, well, the reason that they're you know persisting and pushing ahead is because they're so af afraid. You know, the planet is getting destroyed that even if even if it's not as economically efficient, you know, at least we're going to be saved. What was your experience with with that whole issue? Yeah. Um so as far as the um, the global warming issue, I had I had studied that, and um, and I really I had gone into this job thinking I didn't think about it a lot because I just didn't take it that seriously as some kind of a really imminent like we're all going to be like that stupid movie that came out a few years ago that called The Day After Tomorrow and it just uh -huh. depicted this ab go absolute global just devastation. I didn't really see that coming um, the day after tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it wasn't something that I thought about a lot, but, but it was just something that if I had thought about it, I, I thought, well, you know, I guess that's probably something we'll have to deal with eventually. 
Um, but I studied the issue a lot more, and particularly after cap and trade passed. And I really came to a firm conclusion that, that it was not an issue. There, there is no catastrophic anthropogenic global warming. And, and I know that's something that you've talked a lot about on the show. So you don't need me to repeat all the reasons, um, nor would there be time. <laughs> but I... Um, I wanted to tell the director about this. There was a, a company happy hour to celebrate some kind of a, like, uh, we had, we had finished some kind of a project. I can't remember which, which event it was that had brought on the happy hour, but it was some kind of celebratory thing. And I happened to be sitting next to the director and he is a very smart person. Um, as, as far as being just a really talented engineer. And I just kind of thought that, smart people wanted to know things and to know the truth. And, and so I told him, um, I started explaining to him, you know, cause this was still kind of a new revelation to me and, and explaining to him, you know, I can tell you why it's definitely not the case that we have catastrophic anthropogenic global warming. It's just, it's not real. And I started to tell him why. And he said, but that would be good for us if it were real. Um, and he didn't even want to hear my reasons. And, and I was just shocked. And I said, you know, like, I thought we were going to make money and succeed by being good. And he said, oh, oh, yeah, that too. But, you know, it would just help us a lot if catastrophic anthropogenic global warming were real. I, I don't know. I should just pause for about a minute for people to, I mean, if you think about, forget the day after tomorrow, but the kind of scenarios in an inconvenient truth and what, we are told about the human toll of this to have any element of hope associated with it i mean if you hear someone who's really bright and they've got any kind of evidence if you're even if you're convinced in your mind yeah it's a catastrophe if any kind of evidence that it's not you should be jumping off the walls i mean that should be like wow there's a chance you know the world isn't gonna end there's a chance to save all these people but the idea that that he doesn't even care about the explanation and that he's hopeful that it's true. And I mean, that, that shows what, you know, that you, you, there's no other, if you don't have these phenomenon of a parasitical industry, this is a, an, a really impossible phenomenon, um, to have. I mean, even with nuclear is held back a lot by government, so it's made more expensive. But if you take like the days when nuclear was much freer and more competitive, they didn't need to hope that there was some catastrophe. Although some, some did manipulate the government, they, fundamentally they didn't need to hope most of them were on, on the premise or the better ones were on the premise of we're going to outcompete them. But once you're off that premise, once it doesn't exist, it's really, we have to find some way to destroy them. That's really your job. Your job is to find some way to destroy them. And a widespread belief in a looming catastrophe, that's a good way of doing it. And so I don't think this guy is isolated. No, not at all. And, 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 and even just, even if he kind of deep down is sure, I, I don't know. I don't think this is the case because I don't think that he's, he, I mean, he made it, he it was pretty clear that he wanted to evade thinking about the issue and that that was something he really intended to do was to not think about it. But even if somehow he really thought that, that this thing actually could never happen, the, the CAGW, um, just the fear, just that he would want people to have to live with the fear of this disaster coming on. I remember hearing a year or two ago about some 
one who had committed suicide or maybe it was a family or just one person because they were just of Al Gore's predictions in, in Inconvenient Truth. They were so horrified by the prospect of it and they didn't want to live in a world that was falling apart like that and they killed themselves. I mean, so even if you believe that, that there's no such thing as, as CAGW, but you just want to cash in on people's uh, fear of it, that too is is just horrible. I mean, I felt physically sick after this encounter with the director. I remember on my way to work the next day, just going to the gym first, and I just I didn't want to leave the gym and go to work. I just I felt like I was part of the mafia or something. I mean, I was just so disgusted by him and by the 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 whole company at that point just because of that encounter, and I just didn't know if I even had it in me to go to work that day. Well, we're going to ratchet it up again another notch um, because the, this catastrophic global warming thing, you can say, well, one excuse this Mike, this guy might have is just that it's a more abstract because it's a future prediction, which I don't think is much of an excuse. If you if it's something you take seriously and, and you're claiming you're claiming as a justification for your company, then you should take it very concretely. But you could say, well, okay, it's not real to him that he's talking about a lot of people dying where it is real to him that he's going to lose his job if you actually have competition and energy. But then there's another incident that you told me about, which is Fukushima and how people responded to that. And that, you know, the um, the earthquake and tsunami that killed 20,000 people, um, but was most prominently associated with um you know, the destruction of a nuclear power plant that killed zero people. Yeah, that's right. The uh, That week, we, we had a weekly staff meeting with my manager and, and other people in my sort of subdivision of the engineering department. And he walked in with this big grin like the cat that ate the canary. I mean, he looked real satisfied and he sat down because people were already talking before he arrived. They were talking about this Fukushima disaster, just the earthquake and the tsunami part of it mostly. And because that was what everybody was talking about. It had just happened a couple days before. And he said, well, nuclear is dead. This is going to be good for us. And he just had this like glimmer in his eye. And it was it was awful. He laughed. He actually laughed about it. He said, yep, we can pretty much say nuclear is dead. And um, he was celebrating. And I and I even and I asked about him. It was real early on. And so I didn't have a lot of information and and nobody really had a lot of information about whether anyone had been um, killed yet in the in the nuclear power plant that that was damaged. But I didn't think that I had heard anyone had. I thought I had heard that no one had. I mean, something like tens of thousands of people had been killed by nature, by the tsunami and the earthquake. But I didn't think anyone had been killed because of the nuclear power plant being damaged. Um, and I asked about that. I said I didn't think anyone was killed by the nuclear power plant. He said, oh, well, they will. There will be radiation poisoning, and if the plant doesn't blow up, people are going to get sick from radiation. And, he, you know, just give it some time. They'll get cancer. And it was like he was just... Give it, give it some time is a, a classic evil line. Yeah, I mean, it was like he he was just not willing to consider that the nuclear plant wasn't going to cause additional devastation. Was also unwilling to be unhappy about a 
complete disaster that's ruining lives. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was just, this was a happy day for him. And even though all these people were killed and it was something that was horrible, uh, it, but you know, you'd think that he had just won the lottery. Well, and he had, I mean, insofar as his job involves gambling with different way, methods of destruction, including, you know, whether destroying someone's savings by getting a subsidy or just destroying the competition through something like cap and trade or, you know, more destruction occurring because, you know, catastrophic global warming appeared to be getting worse or, you know, a bunch of people getting wiped out and it being blamed on a nuclear plant. That's great. And, and yeah, nuclear is dead yeah, is particularly have... evil. Because just one one thought is that if you allegedly care about this greenhouse gases, nuclear power plants are the single best way of producing energy on a large scale without emitting greenhouse gases. It just shows how how corrupt this whole thing is, where the solution to the very problem he supposedly would be concerned about and he's trying to help solve, he wants to destroy in the in the name of keeping his green job. Yeah, or of cashing in on his stock options, which he probably had a lot of since he was in management. Yeah, that I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about that. Um, well, we only have a little bit of time left, so I want to get into one one aspect. I mean, I think I think people get the idea of what happens when your job, instead of production, literally becomes destruction, and what kind of incentives that that leads to. Um, but I also want to know a little bit about just what it does, how, how it, um, what it does to employees in general, like how it affects. So there's how it affected you, and I think you you were remarkably persistent in terms of figuring out what was going on. You were remarkably aware of what was going on, but. Is there any fundamental difference between just your just the job aspects like compensation and hours and treatment at a green job versus a, a real job? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, they had an explicitly stated policy that no one was going to get a raise uh, until we started making money. And we didn't really know when that was going to be. They kept saying every year they would say that the IPO was coming next year, but they had said that every year that I was there. And, ever, and apparently from what I was told, they said it for many years before. Um, and so they kind of kept dangling this in front of us, like you're going to make money on your stock options. And then once we start making money, you'll get raises. But until then you're not going to get a raise because the company is not making money. We were spending more money than we were making. Um, even though, like you said at the beginning, this was one of the better companies as solar companies go technology wise, we have had a good technology in terms of it being, um, on the more efficient energy efficient and cost efficient for solar, right? I mean, compared to obviously a Solyndra, um, or, or something like that, but even compared to some of the more respectable solar companies. So it wasn't that this particular company was an anomaly somehow, but the point is that we just, we didn't have a positive cash flow. We were losing money every time we made solar panels. Um, and so they needed to hang on to the money that they had 
And we get all kinds of indirect subsidies in terms of tax credits and um, things like that and our customers being subsidized as well. But we didn't get a big chunk of cash like Solyndra did. We did not. I think we were not approved for the DOE loan guarantee. Um, but regardless, we didn't get that infusion of, of money. Um, and I was glad that we didn't because I didn't want to be getting, you know, paid on the basis of money stolen from other people. But um, regardless, we so so we didn't have a positive cash flow. And and when I went to talk to the, the director about wanting a raise because I had been there for years and I had really grown a lot as an engineer and I had contributed to a lot of um, valuable projects for the company or so I had thought that they were valuable, um, valuable in terms of achieving our goal technology wise, that is. Um, and he said, you know, I, he, he just, he, he got back to me with an unanswerable argument. He just said, we're not making money yet. And if we spend more money on our engineers or on our employees, if we pay you more then we're even further from our goal of making money. So how can we justify giving you a raise? And I just, you know, what could I say to that? It was true. And I wasn't really producing any net value. If the whole company wasn't, then that means that one contributor to the company could also not be set to be creating any net value. So I had no basis to argue with them. And um, that really um, kind of made its way. It really seeped through the culture in the company because people there was just a real negativity and most of the people that I talked to about it were looking for other jobs. And in most cases it was because they were tired of being underpaid. And, um, there was also a requirement that the engineers be on call, all the design engineers, cause we had a factory running 24 hours a day and they didn't want to hire any manufacturing engineers to staff it properly. So they demanded that the design engineers be on call so that like if something in the factory goes wrong, which it constantly did, then you would get a call in the middle of the night and you'd be required to come in even if it's three o'clock in the morning and you've just worked a 15 hour day or whatever. Um, because they, and I remember at, at a meeting, I asked the director, somebody else had asked the director, well, what about the contractors? Cause we had some contractors who did CAD work and stuff like that for us. Could, maybe they could help out because the engineers were desperately trying to get more people in on this so that it, certain individuals didn't have to keep constantly getting called. And the director said, oh, well, if we got the contractors to, to get to contribute to that, then we'd have to pay them extra. So you see, we we didn't cost anything, and and that was the whole point is that they were trying to get out of having to pay uh, for for anything. So they just demanded that we come in and and um, and be on call, and and it would be for a week at a time, so every other week. So you literally, it, it, there was no excuse it, it, at any point, no matter how many hours you worked, if you were sleeping, it, nothing. It didn't matter. You had to be on call. Yeah, there's there's an interesting element uh, of how expendable, in a sense, the human beings are in this kind of in this kind of operation. And I want to uh, just to kind of wrap up. I want to differentiate this from a startup where you're not making money at the beginning, but then there's an expectation of making money later. And here, as uh, Debbie talked about earlier, there were clear economic 
you know, intractable problems that no one had any idea how to solve. And then the issue is, well, you're just kind of hoping for the right legislation or the right, you know, loan guarantee or whatever, but or right subsidy. But usually with subsidies, it's not like you're making a fortune. You know, you're just trying to you're trying to stay alive, and you've got these intractable physical costs that you can't really get around. So the people who ultimately get the abuse are the engineers, and it's sad in so many ways because they're being parasitical, and yet, at least if they're being parasitical, you'd hope that they were happy, but they're made miserable because it's this sort of least common denominator parasitism where they just have to be, they they can't make that much money, you know, for long because the company is just constantly trying not to run out of money. There's this basic game where they're at any given time being given X amount of taxpayer money or X amount of advantage and they have to kind of ride out that racket and that you know you can't you can only cut your materials cost so much so the people who suffer for the racket are the employees and then the better employees now as we wrap up I just want to wrap up on a happier note not for green jobs because there's nothing happy about that but how did this all end uh, for you? Just just give it to us in a minute or two because we're we're over the hour. There's been so much so much good stuff. Sure, um, they had a massive round of layoffs, and I was so happy to be one of the people who was laid off because I had not had time really to to put enough time into getting another job, and I couldn't justify quitting with the economy being what it is and unemployment being what it is. So, uh, getting laid off was really the best thing that could have happened to me, and I've got a much better job now in a non-green industry, and I am so happy with my current job. It's um, it's like a different world. Um, it's something that's productive and needed. And uh, so, it, yeah, I, I, I couldn't be happier now. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very glad things turned out the way they did. Well, it's, it's good to hear just even the enthusiasm in your voice. And uh, I actually remember when this happened because, mm-hmm. you know, when we first started working together, you were working at the solar company and then you got laid off. And then I think pretty quickly, actually, you got a new job. I figured you wouldn't have that much, you wouldn't have that much trouble uh, given your, your skill set. Uh, but it's just, it's it's been just cool on a more personal level to see that difference between, oh, yeah, I happened to work at this solar company and I didn't even know a tenth of it then. But then to, wow, I actually get to fulfill what an engineer is supposed to do. I actually get to build things that are valuable. And that is exactly what a green job does not do. It it. It builds things that are not valuable, not valuable compared to the things that could be built. It wastes the ability of people. It turns them into parasites. It makes destruction in their interest. And when you hear the word, you know, when you hear the term green job and how we need more of them, I hope you remember uh, Deborah Sloan's story and and check out her article. I'm not sure where we're going to publish it, but it'll be published in the next week or two for sure. And with that, we're over the hour, so I'll wrap up quickly. Thank you for listening. Any questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check out the website, which is being populated with tons of new content from Debbie Sloan and others. That's at industrialprogress.net. And until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.